Good Morning Nancy is a horror movie podcast, so it may not be for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. Good morning, Nancy. My name is Gracie. And I'm Abby. And if you're new to the show, welcome. This is season 10, episode 4, and we are so excited for you to join us. Gracie and I have been friends since forever, and we love talking about our favorite horror movies together and with you. All while drinking a nice cup of coffee. Today, we'll be discussing the teen slasher film, Cherry Falls. <laughs> it was written by Ken Seldon and directed by Jeffrey Wright. It stars the late, great Brittany Murphy, Jay Moore, Michael Bean, and Gabriel Mann. We are not shy about spoilers, so if you haven't seen this film, we highly suggest that you pause this episode and watch it. Now, at the time of this recording, the film is not yet available to stream anywhere. It is currently only available on Blu-ray, so a link to purchase the film through Shout Factory is in the show notes. Also, specific trigger warnings for this episode can be found in the show notes. All right, are you still here? Great, then let's get this morning started. Abby, would you be so kind as to read the plot summary? Absolutely. Teenagers are being murdered in the town of Cherry Falls by a mysterious figure who prowls the night looking for virgins. Dun, dun, dun. Plot twist. (laughs) Jodie Markin does her best to figure out what this murderer wants while uncovering clues of the town's past along with her father, who also happens to be the town's sheriff. She discovers that secrets from her parents' past have come back to haunt her and her friends. Will she be the next victim, or will she discover the killer's identity and motive before it's too late? Thank you, Abby, for that lovely plot summary. You're welcome. Okay, let's get into the very messy production and release of this film. (laughs) Uh, okay, so according to Eric Walkuski, quote, In 1998, Australian director Jeffrey Wright was hired by October Films to helm Ken Seldon's satirical horror script Cherry Falls. While the script remained mostly unchanged during the course of filming, Wright lent the film an intenser edge than the screenplay had, ditching a comedic vibe in favor of a more serious tone. While intended to be a theatrical release, the film found itself under intense scrutiny from the MPAA, which deemed it too violent and sexually suggestive. (laughs) Oh, dear. (laughs) Uh, Yeah. At the the same time, violence in movies was a major focus at the U.S. Senate. This was a year after Columbine. More on this later. Uh, This made Cherry Falls a likely target as it was just about to be released by its new distributor, USA Films. Rather than invite negative press, the distributor decided to release the film in the States as a TV movie on the USA Network, although it was released theatrically overseas, unquote. Okay, Uh, and as far as I could tell, it actually did really well in Europe. 
Well, imagine that. They're so open about <laughs> I yeah, I mean like at the time I think they were. I mean, they have a history of censoring like video nasties and stuff. Uh oh, like that's we talked true. about in our peeping Tom episode, but mm-hmm. um I think at this time they were okay with it, but it, it still had been censored because there is mm. the uncut version as I'll talk about in a minute is it cannot be found. So anyway, um <laughs> so that's basically in a nutshell how nutshell how freaking sad that release was um (laughs) according to the dvd extra lose it or die the untold story of cherry falls and the wikipedia page dedicated to the film quote the film set was described as quote unquote tense by writer ken selden due to the 30-day production schedule falling behind which led to budget issues for october films the original distributors uh, director Jeffrey Wright kept Selden's original script relatively unchanged, but then he rewrote like the film's like final orgy scene, which had originally been conceived by Selden as featuring the teenagers having a massive sex party under a giant white sheet. Ew. Wright opted to shoot the scene with the cast nude, which resulted in much of the scene being cut in order to avoid an X rating. So... There is, like, an orgy scene in the film, but everyone's wearing, like, you know, bras and panties and stuff. And Mm -hmm. there's no nudity in that orgy scene that I remember. But so the orgy scene that was cut did have all the nudity and stuff. And, yeah. So uh, I got to add that the whole reason Ken Selden even wrote the script was for that scene. He wanted to write a movie that had a teen orgy scene. And, uh... I think we need to keep our eye on this guy because what the actual fuck? (laughs) (laughs) Hashtag hashtag eyes on Ken. (laughs) Like, what a very troubling ambition. And he hasn't written anything really since this film. (laughs) Okay, well, now we know where some of the problematic themes in this film come from. I wish everyone could see me rolling my eyes right now. So, according to friend of the show, Trace Thurman, for Bloody Disgusting, quote, with a budget of $14 million, Cherry Falls has the distinction of being the most expensive TV movie ever made, unquote. And, quote, in a post-Columbine world, the media eye was on violence in cinema. The late 90s and early 2000s saw many horror films trimmed of much of their violence. This holds true for Cherry Falls as well, with nearly all of the death scenes lacking in the gore department, unquote. And if you'd like to listen to Trace and his co-host Joel talk about the film, you can listen to their episode on it for Horror Queers. Uh, I'll put a link to it in the show notes. Okay, so according to the Wikipedia page dedicated to the film, the film was released on VHS by USA Home Entertainment, as well as on DVD in a double feature disc paired with the movie Terror Tract from 2000. However, this disc has remained out of print since the early 2000s. So, yeah, for like 16 years, if you didn't have it on VHS when it came out, or that rare double feature DVD, or if you never caught it on cable, then you probably have never seen or even heard of Cherry Falls. Uh, My husband hadn't heard of it. Uh, And honestly, to be I mean, to be quite honest, I hadn't even heard of it until maybe about two years ago. 
Uh, I think I read a like top 10 best horror movies you've never seen list and I saw that it was on there. Um, okay. And you hadn't heard of it either, right? When I told you about it? <laughs> no. But I was like, oh, Brittany Murphy? Hell yeah. <laughs> no, I know. That's what's so surprising. It's like, wow, Brittany Murphy, she's the best. Yes. <laughs> R.I.P. for real. I know. Um, but even so, on October 10th, 2015, Scream Factory... Uh, a part of Shout Factory, announced that they would be releasing the film on Blu-ray in the spring of 2016, which they did. And in their statement, it was revealed that they had attempted to license the uncut version of the film, but they were unable to procure it through USA Films. And film director Jeffrey Wright has stated that he also does not possess an original cut of the film. And he was, so he was also unable to provide it for this DVD release. Um, so Shout Factory, aka Scream Factory, they had to release the original cut uh, that was seen on television. So um, I think Jeffrey Wright said that he's pretty sure USA Network still has the uncut film, but that it's probably buried somewhere, probably in a vault or <laughs> someone's grandma's storage unit or whatever. <laughs> Okay, so according to MorbidMuch.com, quote, Brittany Murphy is fantastic in this film, but that's no surprise. And honestly, I'd almost go as far to say that this may be her best role of her short career, unquote. And according to Trace Thurman from Horror Queers, quote, Though marred by edits made to satisfy a post-Columbine world, Cherry Falls still manages to be one of the more effective and funny post-Scream slashers, unquote. Okay, so let's discuss this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, let's. <laughs> wow, there's a lot to unpack here. And I'm going to be rambling a lot, so thank you for listening. <laughs> no, it's going to be great. Uh, okay, so let's talk about Columbine, unfortunately, and its effect on like horror films in this time period. I gotta say, one of the reasons why I wanted to talk about this movie was because the new Scream movie, the 2022 one, was just released in theaters here in the States. And everyone and their mother is talking about the Scream franchise on their YouTube channels or on their podcast. And that's fine. I am definitely going to mention Scream in this episode multiple times for various reasons. Um, and it's personally my favorite franchise, so I have no complaints that everyone is talking about it. But when it came time for us to pick a film, I was like, you know, maybe I should pick one of the slasher films that kind of ended the Scream movie clone hype. <laughs> kind of like turn it on its head here. And although Cherry Falls didn't technically end the era itself, you know, like the film itself didn't just like make make this happen. It came out at a time that was like the absolute worst time, uh, like I mentioned in the production notes. So, yeah, according to Adam White, quote, the slasher boom of the 90s, an era of cinema that began with Scream, 
birthed Halloween H2O, Urban Legend, and I Know What You Did Last Summer, and unlike much of its slasher lineage, largely foregrounded difficult and complex female characters above the men trying to kill them. This was an era of enormously commercial horror, one that rescued slasher movies from dusty fates on the bottom shelf at your local blockbuster and turned them into must-see events. They were films covered in the media as breathlessly as a Marvel movie today. It was also an era that introduced a degree of compassion to a genre typically dominated by gratuitous nudity, problematic sexual politics, and graphic violence. Like most horror trends, the Scream era slasher boom eventually faded out, unquote. So... Where Scream began a new era of slashers, Cherry Falls is arguably the end of that era. So, Abby, would you please give us a little background on what Columbine is and how it affected our nation? Sure thing. So, according to an article about this tragic occurrence from History.com, quote, the Columbine shooting on April 20th, 1999, at Columbine High School in Littleton, Colorado, occurred when two teens went on a shooting spree, killing 13 people and wounding more than 20 others before turning the guns on themselves and committing suicide. The Columbine shooting was, at the time, the worst high school shooting in U.S. history and prompted a national debate on gun control and school safety, as well as a major investigation to determine what motivated the gunmen. Now, for anyone who went to public school and is an elder millennial, this is something that I'm sure sticks in your memory. And Gracie, I'm sure you can speak more on this than I can, but... I'm sure you even learned about it as a homeschooled student. Like, yeah. So it obviously wasn't something that I had to worry about since I was homeschooled from kindergarten all through high school, right before I went to college. Um, But my husband, who's a few years older than me, he was in high school during this time. And he was a young high schooler. And uh, he remembers it was uh, really traumatic yeah, I remember in, um, this was, like, way after um, Columbine happened, but I remember in middle school and high school, we had several assemblies where we learned about Columbine, like, all together. Mm-hmm. As a whole class, we all sat and we sat in the auditorium and watched footage of what happened. Oh, wow. Yeah. It I was. I don't think I just saw footage until I was older oh yeah yeah. that's so interesting that your school was like this is what happened (laughs) they were fair that's they were very honest with you that's actually really good yes um it was really intense um and then a survivor of the shooting came out on stage and talked to us about what it was like oh my god yeah so it was a little bit weird (laughs) because it scared the shit out of a lot of us Mm. (laughs) But a lot of really important conversations happened between us and our parents and siblings because of it. So it was important that, you know, we were kind of made to see this kind of stuff and like exposed to it at the same age because, you know, it's very sadly a reality that we all have to deal with now. So the fear didn't end in 1999. 
And I'm, you know, I'm sure you're all aware of because it kicked off an era of terror surrounding public schools and like the ability for kids to have access to guns. But what really grinds my gears is that it's mostly a mental health issue and it has a lot to do with um, generational abuse and that kind of thing. I mean, I could go on for days about that. But yeah, that's Columbine. And that's how it affected the nation. (laughs) Yeah, it was definitely something that I remember being a kid because I think I was 12 in 1999. I remember being like young and being like, how could this have happened? Like, it was Mm -hmm. almost like I couldn't comprehend children killing children. Yeah. And so it would really... uh, it was really like a growing up moment for me mm-hmm. where I was just like, I can't believe this is that this happened. Like it really like was something that had never occurred to me. Yeah. Which probably just, I don't know, maybe shows how innocent I was, <laughs> but Aww. I just was like, I, yeah, at 12 years old. I was like, how, how did this happen? How can somebody be so, quote unquote, sad or upset or angry that they would do this to other children. And especially since the gunmen were not bullied, they were bullies in the school. They weren't actually bullied. So that's like a common misconception about the gunmen. Mm -hmm. So it was really um, it was really a a lot for me to take as a kid to hear that. I couldn't believe it. Yeah. Well, and we blamed the wrong things for it and that's why films like cherry falls and a lot of the horror films that we see from that era were so heavily edited and why we hear that whole argument about video games making people violent it was just it became uh less focused on the actual root of the problem and more on um you know society's faults and flaws and and stuff like that what's really interesting is that um i believe it was steven pinker who said it he wrote a whole book about how this is the most peaceful time that humans are living in which seems kind of counterintuitive because all the time shoved in our face we're seeing all of this violence and you know, crimes against humanity, basically. But um, out of all of the times that humans have been alive, this is the most peaceful. And I think that people are really blinded by just the information that's out there. Well, and we talked about this in our Hellraiser episode, and I'm sure we've talked about it in others, but I just remember we we uh, distinctly talked about it in that episode. But uh, when 24-Hour News came out, Yes. That really was a blessing and a curse because yep. uh, we heard about everything all the time. So we are constantly being fed, like, about, like, fed information about, like, child uh, abductions and violence and all this stuff that's happening all around the world, and not just in, your, like, your local area, which is what most people were only hearing about was stuff that happened in their local area. We were hearing about world news terror and all this all these awful things that are happening all over the world 
children are probably safer now than they were in the 80s. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of like helicopter parenting and like not letting your kid like walk down the street and stuff anymore because uh, alone because it's like they might get picked up by, uh, you know, a killer or something. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're right. We Yeah. Wow. We went off script there for a little bit, but um. Well, this this all relates to the themes in Cherry Falls, though. It does. It does. This movie is a mess, but it's pretty brilliant in its yes. own way. Yep. Uh, and I, it came out, quote unquote, at the wrong time, but it kind of came out at the right time as well. Yes, <laughs> so absolutely. It's actually kind of brilliant. So let's talk about uh, sex, virginity, queerness, and uh, incest that is presented uh. in cherry falls uh lots of triggers like i said please check the show notes before you listen uh to the you know the triggers that are gonna happen in this um yeah okay so i found a phenomenal blog called clarissa explains fuck all (laughs) and there's a great blog post slash essay on the website by an author named amy roberts and the uh essay is called hymen holocaust Cherry Falls and the Myth of the Sacred Virgin. So Robert says, quote, this is a long quote too, sorry, but it's just so, this this link is in the show notes if you want to read the whole thing. It's a great, great essay. Robert says, quote, in the later half of the 90s, virgins inexplicably became a gigantic gigantic cultural obsession. In 1996, Nev Campbell's Sidney Prescott was still so traumatized by her mother's brutal murder and scream that she was struggling to give up her V-card to the quote-unquote bubble-butt boyfriend Billy. In 1999, American Pie's gaggle of horny teens were, were so desperate to pop their cherry that one of them stuck their dick in a pie and <laughs> Sofia Coppola brought us the, an adaptation of Jeffrey Eugenides' Suicidal Sisters with the Virgin Suicides. From 1996 onwards, Britney Spears became America's sweetheart by simultaneously teasing an apparently naive hypersexual aesthetic that included red vinyl cat suits and minuscule schoolgirl outfits while also maintaining what that she was still a virgin and would remain so until marriage. It was later alleged by her mother, so take it with a pinch of salt, that Brittany had actually lost her virginity at 14. And that we perhaps should have paid more attention to the singer when she warned us, quote unquote, I'm not that innocent on Oops, I Did It Again. (laughs) Time and again, we were culturally reminded of the apparent sacred nature of virginity and what a huge deal it is to lose it. Spoiler alert, in most people's cases, it really isn't. So it seemed only natural that in 2000, a horror movie would end its era of virginal obsessions with what the film tongue-in-cheek describes as a hymen holocaust. (laughs) Cherry Falls. (laughs) To bring era full circle, the film stars Brittany, you're a virgin who can't drive Murphy, and features a shot early on in the movie, which is almost identical to Britney Spears' highly controversial 1999 virgin bait cover for Rolling Stone. Here you find the sacred virgin in her natural environment, looking old enough to be sexy, 
yet young enough to still be innocent, and cradling a childhood toy close to her bosom. Jody is reminded that while teenagers were enjoying a liberated sense of sexual awakening on screen in on screen in the 1990s, that there was still much of America and the UK who were concerned about how quickly quote unquote kids these days were growing up, perhaps thanks to what they perceived as over-sexualized teen culture. In Cherry Falls, after discovering that the serial killer disposing of high school of high schoolers is specifically targeting virgins, Jody's town sheriff father creeps into her bedroom in the middle Ugh. of the night <laughs> to wake her up for a friendly old casual chat about whether she's gotten laid yet. You know, <laughs> as you do. <laughs> In a baffling series of questions and answers, Jody appears to be almost endeared by her father's late night line of questioning. However, after she informs him that she's still a virgin and is still his quote unquote little girl as a result, ew, she <laughs> also sees that he's troubled by she also sees that he's troubled by her answer in a way she didn't expect. She asks if he's disappointed that she hasn't fucked her boyfriend yet. Because this movie is stacked full of ludicrous dialogue that will make you do a spit take if you try and drink during it. (laughs) And he gives her a fatherly smooch on the forehead and tells her that of course he isn't. Hell, he's proud of his little virgin. And scene. (laughs) Oh my god. And everyone needs a hot shower to wash the gross off. It's a weird moment in a movie full of weird moments, but it's also an important one. While we're led to believe for most of Cherry Falls that Jody is keeping her virginity intact for herself, her father's evident pride at her purity, not to mention the way he still kisses his teenage daughter on the goddamn lips, <laughs> suggests that the character is also maintaining her purity so that she can remain, quote unquote, daddy's little girl. Oh my god. That's a lot. Also, I was thinking while you were talking about that quote. Mm -hmm. So this is a tiny, tiny bit off topic, but also relevant because it was going on at the same time that this movie came out. Yes. I was watching a documentary on Netflix about Jeffrey Epstein. Oh, no. (laughs) Yes. And during this time period, the man who... Um, I couldn't tell you his name, but fuck that guy because he's gross anyway. He was uh, the owner of like Victoria's Secret and... Um, oh, uh-huh. There was another guy who was also the head of like the main modeling industry where all these supermodels in the 90s came from. And they all look like prepubescent girls. Oh, Yeah. And that was, like, the thing in the 90s was, like, the younger you looked and, like, it was so popular to be, like, very gaunt and, like, look like you were undernourished, like you were a teeny tiny skinny little 12-year-old girl. Yeah. These men, like, hung out with Jeffrey Epstein. So... All of these men who were basically, like, in charge of what a woman's body image looked like in the 90s, 
they were all involved in the same thing and they were pedophiles, basically. Mm -hmm. We have to call it like we see it. And I just think that it is so interesting that this is reflected in Jodi's character. Like she, like the quote says, she is of age, but she's also, she's very girlish and innocent and like very unassuming and stuff like that. I love how she's sort of alternative as well. Yes. That's a really interesting depiction of a final girl. Mm -hmm. She is alternative. She has black hair. She has a cute little, like, hat that looks like it's from Hot Topic, like, Mm -hmm. you know? Yep. (laughs) Uh, You know, she has those crazy black boots, and she wears the... She just wears... She wears black. And she has dark makeup, and it's, like, she's very alternative. So it's an interesting, like, twist on, like what a virgin would, I guess, quote unquote, like, look like, I guess. Yes. But it's also, like, uh, I don't know. It's also kind of weird because there's almost, like, a fetishized version of, like, what you're into, I guess, of, like, all these adults that are, like, into her, you know? Yes. Yes. Well, it shows how far-reaching and permeating that culture really was. Mm -hmm. I feel gross even calling it, like, a culture, too, because that would mean that, like, I don't know. I don't know. I just, it's it's not good. It's not good. (laughs) I guess it's, like, almost like a, a product of, like, you're not safe no matter what, how you dress or what you yes. look like, you know, it's just like yep. one of those things where it's like, you know, but she dressed this way or she just, no, it's like, it yeah. doesn't matter, you know? Yeah. Yep. So, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> okay. So <laughs> Amy Roberts goes on and says, quote, Jody realizes it's just as ludicrous to feel pressured to lose her virginity as, as it is to feel pressured to remain a virgin, especially to ensure her father still loves her just the same as he always has. Unquote. So um, according to Nat Bremer, quote, on the surface, Jody is characterized as a classical virgin. Most other slashers don't really explore that aspect of the protagonist, but her virginity is so tied to the overall narrative that it becomes a major defining point of her character. She wants to have sex because she wants to survive, but she's still a virgin at heart. The fact that her life is on the line doesn't make her automatically ready for sex, unquote. And uh, we are going to talk in depth about this. (laughs) (laughs) You can absolutely read this as a young straight woman who is taking charge of her sexuality and deciding when to have sex with a guy. But you can absolutely read it as queer, too. Obviously, like, however you identify, you can probably code it to your identity. And uh, I'm going to talk about how asexuality is coded uh, with Jodi and in this film. And honestly, with most horror films, especially with Final Girls, because uh, it's my podcast and I can talk about whatever I want. (laughs) So, fuck you. Uh, Okay, so... (laughs) Or not, because I won't. Okay, so I'm going to... (laughs) a little asexual joke there oh my god um 
Okay, so I'm going to actually quote myself from a blog post that I uploaded to our Patreon. Um, in this post, I mostly talked about about my own experiences as an asexual person. Um, and I also talked about Danny from Midsummer and Lori from Halloween and Sydney from Screen uh, Scream. But as you'll soon hear, their situations, including mine, sound an awful lot like Jody's from Cherry Falls. So... Okay, so this is from my blog post called Asexuality and Horror. Uh, To quote myself, asexuality is a spectrum and not all aces are alike, but what aces do have in common is that we just don't care about sex, like at all. There are other ways that we show love. When it comes to physical touch, many aces would much rather snuggle or hold hands or scratch each other's head. I have one ace friend who told me that having her hair brushed by someone was more intimate to her than having sex. Now, How does this relate to final girls being coded as ace? Let's use Laurie Strode from Halloween, from the Halloween franchise as an example. Laurie comes off as inexperienced in quote unquote love. She is a virgin. And according to her friend, Annie, she scares the boys away. Laurie says it's because she's smart and boys don't like that. Her other friends say it's because she works too much. Either way, Laurie doesn't have sex. Does that make her any less of a loving and caring person? No way. It could be rightly argued that out of all the babysitters in the film, she is the most maternal and caring. She reads to the kids, gets them involved in activities, makes them food, and in the end, she fights off the killer on her own and saves the kids' lives. Oh, and Lori isn't disinterested in romantic love, by the way. She has a crush on one of the guys at school and dreamily sings a song about love while walking down the street. I wish I had you all alone, just the two of us. Lori might be coded as asexual, but she is definitely isn't aromantic. And that's A-R-O-M-A-N-T-I-C. <laughs> if Lori was interested in having sex, you best believe that she would be having it. But she finds other activities in life far more rewarding. She loves books. She loves school. She loves making money and taking care of kids. When I was in high school and then in college, I was made fun of a lot for being nerdy and for not being interested in sex. Many assumed it was because I was homeschooled. And I'm going to let you all know on a little secret, homeschoolers are just as sexually active as other kids. (laughs) Maybe more so. (laughs) Probably more. (laughs) I was a lot like Lori. I just wanted to read books. When I did enter my first few relationships in college, I felt like I had to hide my lack of desire for sex. I felt pressured into sexual situations by the people I was with, and it was because I didn't want to be known as the prude on campus, and also, I wanted these people to like me. I was already called the nun by some of the girls I lived with in college, and it was deeply upsetting. I know for a fact that 90% of my relationships in college ended because I, quote unquote, wouldn't go farther with them. Wild, right? Looking back, I can see so much of myself in Lori and in Danny from Midsummer. Like most LGBT plus individuals, many aces feel like they have to mask their sexual identity in order to get through life because when our asexuality and virginity is exposed, we become almost like a quote unquote quest, a body that needs to be vanquished by the one person who's able to go all the way with the mysterious virgin slash asexual. Maybe that's what slasher killers are. They are the people who think they can, quote unquote, change you. They can pierce you with their knives, so to speak, and you'll learn to love sex. They'll fix you. Sydney from the Scream franchise could also be coded as ace. 
Her boyfriend, Billy, says that they started their relationship off hot and heavy, but after Sid's mom died, she wasn't interested in sex anymore. The death of Sid's mom could have easily traumatized her into not wanting sex, as it's casually mentioned in the film. But I think there's something else here. Her mom was an extremely sexual person who was having affairs with the men in town. Sid says that she thinks she always knew this about her mom, but didn't want to admit it. Maybe a desire for sex was Sid's way of connecting with her mom, and when her mom died, maybe she was free to be ace again. Maybe I'm reaching here, but either way, Billy's behavior towards Sid's lack of sexual desire screams, hehe, <laughs> insensitive allosexual partner. He makes her feel guilty for not wanting to go farther than kissing or flashing her boob. Watching this movie again as an out ace is borderline triggering. I remember being like Sid. Billy calls her a tease, but I think Sid is trying to maintain her asexuality while also keeping her boyfriend around. She's trying to mask her identity in, to the best of her ability, but she loves her boyfriend. She doesn't want to lose him. Maybe if I just flash my boob, he will like feel like that's enough to stick around. Been there, done that. When she does have sex with Billy, before he reveals himself to be one of the killers, it's awkward. It's awkward AF. This could be contributed to them being inexperienced teens, or that sex in reality is just awkward in real life. After sex, Sydney seems meh about the whole thing, and she still doesn't trust her boyfriend. Nothing has really changed between them, and she still has suspicions that he's not who he says he is. Sex changed nothing. She doesn't love or trust Billy any more than she did before. I think, if anything, she loves and trusts him less. It's only when he and his accomplice, Stu, trick her into thinking he's a victim that she feels bad. Now that I'm out as ace, my love of horror makes so much more sense. Unquote. So, in a lot of ways, Jody's situation is similar to Sid's. And I'll talk about how their relations to their parents and their sexuality are connected in a minute here. Uh, but unlike Billy, Kenny isn't a killer. And anyway, like when she tries to be kinky and dominant with Kenny, he flips out. <laughs> I mean, he's into it at first because this is what he's always wanted, but something doesn't feel right about the way Jody is initiating sex. You just want to get back at your parents is what he says. And then he says something along the lines of, I want you to have sex with me because you want to. And then she rejects him and leaves and goes to Mr. Marlston, Marlston's house. Um, but Kenny is, like, very dense, but <laughs> he, he does follow through in the end, so I have to give him credit. Okay? <laughs> so. Aww. You know what, though? I don't mind Kenny. Like, to be really honest, like, yes, he is kind of a dick, but I think that it's very honorable of him to be, like, I think that we should see other people because clearly they want different things. Right. I mean, he is kind of, he is, he is sort of a prick about it. Like, I'm not going to lie, but I felt kind of bad for him. I really did. Cause I was like, she's kind of mean. <laughs> I mean, like she was kind of mean about it. You have every right to be like, this is how I want sex. And then if somebody is not into it or whatever, you have every right to walk away. Right. And I think that scene, though, this is why I feel like, obviously, like, we're going to talk about this in a minute. But uh, this is why I feel like that scene can be coded as ace. Because Mm -hmm. I feel like as an ace, you over, you can over dramatize 
the sexual encounter in order to hook the person that you're having sex with because you think that this is what's going to make them happy and stay with you. Yep. Like I said, not all aces are the same, but I just remember like feeling like if I over-dramatize this, like this will get this person to stay with me and be interested in me because I have to mask my sexual identity. And I feel Mm. like this scene can be coded in that way because she's trying to hook her boyfriend and keep him because she does like him, does love him. Yeah. But I think he, this is why I think that he is a good guy, really, in the end. Because he sees that something's not right. Yeah, She is not acting like herself. The self, the person that he likes, you know. Yeah. And so when he kind of calls her out, she's obviously frustrated because she's like, what do you want me to do? Do you want me to have sex with you or do you not want me to have sex with you? So I can see why she is conflicted and mad. Because it's like, which one is it? But I can also see why he's conflicted and upset, too. When your sexuality doesn't mesh with the person that you're with, it can be really uh, upsetting. And it can, like, be really uh, damaging to the relationship. And then, obviously, in the end, which I kind of love that Jodi never actually loses her virginity in this film. Uh Uh-huh. Even though this film is very sexual. Yes. Highly sexual. (laughs) We never actually see her lose her virginity. And I think that that is actually really interesting. Yeah. She maintains it. And you could use that as like a problematic thing because she survives. But the whole thing is like, but the virgins are the ones being killed anyway. So you're right. (laughs) The fact that she doesn't even she's still a virgin and she still kills the killer, even though the plot has been twisted, I think is a really is really interesting. So it's like the opposite of Scream, which I thought was kind of cool. So yes. Uh, okay. Uh, Jody obviously, she leaves this feeling incredibly conflicted. So she goes to her teacher's house for sex is what is presented in the film. Ugh. But I personally don't think that that's what's happening. If we're going to code this as Ace. Um, Jody is interested in Marlston because he's kind of her, he's kind to her and he's gentle and at first appears to be mature and stable, unlike her teen boyfriend to her. Uh, Marlston introduced Jody to T.S. Eliot and they together they recite his poetry and obviously there's some sort of connection between them. I personally don't think it's sexual tension. It comes off as romantic tension, really. But maybe not even that because it's it could even be more like familial connection. Yeah. And again, if we're going to code it as ace, like this is how it can be looked at. Uh, however... Let's take a step back here because Marlston is also Jody's brother. <laughs> uh, so in the film, Marlston talks about how he and Jody's dad have the same eyes and they generally look alike. And now there's this really fucking weird sexual tension between Jody and her father, <laughs> which has nothing to do with asexuality, obviously, but it's like, it's just like this other sexual tension that's happening. It's like familial sexual tension. Yeah. If you don't want to call it like, you know, a partner sexual tension, it's familial sexual tension. And I think Marlston kind of reminds uh, Jody of her father without being her father. So it's like this like yikes on bikes thing happening here. There's Ah. a lot of incest coded in this film, which we'll talk more about in a minute. But uh, going back to asexuality, that's how I coded that 
yes like that scene in the film so okay so um gracie and i kind of went back and forth via text about this idea and i don't want to say that i'm like disagreeing on some of these points because i totally see what you're saying um so disagree is the wrong word because you have like a lot of really valid points and i don't want to make it sound like the way you're viewing this as an ace person doesn't make sense because it does but how i looked at it was that i think jody has sexual tension with everyone (laughs) yeah and I feel like it's done on purpose because she is supposed to be seen as, like, the good girl virgin. But she's extremely intimate with everyone, even her mom. Like, the only person I noticed she wasn't intimate with is her best friend, who is a girl. And I don't know. I just thought that was, like, I thought it was, like, a little bit over the top. Because, like, she's so (laughs) touchy-feely. Well, I mean, her, is she touchy-feely or are people touchy-feely with her? Because I That's feel like. That's true. Because I think everybody sort of initiates that with her and she just goes along with it. Because mm. even her mom is the one that leans in for the kiss. Yep. That is a really good point. I mean, her friend Timmy also kisses her on the cheek. Like, she never, I don't feel like she ever really initiates anything until she has her boyfriend try to suck her toes. Oh my god, yes! That's a really good point. And I I don't feel like she's very intimate with the other straight-coated boys. Like, she just, she kind of keeps her distance from them, and she only really interacts with them when her friend wants to get to know them. Mm. And Timmy is also very much coded as queer and he's one of her best friends so like when he kisses her on the cheek it's very platonic and then right she has like her friend who you mentioned the girl um you like you said like she doesn't have te- sexual tension with her but i think i do think and i think you are right about this she has sexual tension with both her parents <sighs> and what's really bizarre about that is that they are really in control of her body and her mind I think every interpretation of this film is valid, uh, but I want to hear more. So I want to hear more about like what you think about that, because I think you have a really good point. Well, besides like the intimacy with her parents, I feel like when she talks to Mr. Marliston, it feels like the whole like teacher's pet gone sexy kind of thing. Like that trope of like students Mm -hmm. having affairs with their teachers. You kind of look, I think you can look back on that scene And be like, okay, like, yeah, that's her brother. And, you know, like, you can see why he kind of is rejecting her because she is related to him. It's not because Mm -hmm. he's her teacher. It's because of this. And she she says, like, let's talk alone. But, I mean, it's just like, I don't know. She doesn't brush her hand against his cheek. Like, she doesn't touch him. Mm -hmm. They just, they're talking. I don't know. But, like, I really does kind of, it does really, in the end, bring up, like, more of the the incest implications, though. I can see that, for sure. Yeah. I mean, watching her interactions as an audience audience member, especially with Mr. Marliston, your alarm bells go off, like, immediately. Because, Mm -hmm. like, she, in this film, is surrounded by predatory people. You yeah. know there's something wrong with the principal. Yep. And her father. And most importantly, Mr. Marliston. I mean, aside from the age gap, but like that's 
the first red flag that you're presented with is when they are talking alone and he seems to really be like, oh, like, you want to talk alone some more? Like, it's just very uncomfortable. I don't know. He seems like he's like, oh, yeah, uh, uh, okay. Like, he's really awkward about it. Like, he doesn't really want it to happen. I don't know. That's how I interpret it. I'm not saying that it's not problematic. It's super problematic. <laughs> I recognize this. Yes. But uh, yeah, everyone in this film is very weirdly sexually charged and it is so uncomfortable. Yes. And I think too, part of that whole thing is like, for me, since the beginning of the film, I knew that Mr. Marliston was extremely suspect because of the he way that he sus. <laughs> he was very sus. The way that he talks to the kids in the classroom and how he like is so pushy and he wants to hear how they're feeling and then like when the sheriff comes in and he's like, "Oh, can you give us more details about the case you're Mm. like "Mm, nobody asks that like only people who are murderers want to know if you know more about the case you freaking uh so i was like "Mm, there there's something wrong with that guy but um yeah yeah, i mean jody she's able to kind of float between everyone and she's very likable as well and she seems like a bit of a lolita character because of this Mm mm-hmm She is a people pleaser. She does things that cause her discomfort because she knows it will make people proud. For example, the whole discussion with her dad about her sex life and the way that she eats her mom's cookies even though they're burnt to shit. (laughs) (laughs) And like the way that she wants to please her boyfriend and she goes over the top like we were talking about. Like... I feel like there were a lot of female characters like this in 90s horror. And it was a direct reflection of the times. Like, if we look at what was going on in modeling, like I mentioned earlier, in entertainment, we see that rise of this culture where these famous female figures are considered sexy for looking like a very young girl. Like, jailbait, (laughs) if you will. Mm. I hate that word i hate 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 that word but that's like what pops into my brain when i think about this Mm. kind of stuff but Mm -hmm. meanwhile in the 90s like homes are being broken down and the idea of nuclear families that's starting to kind of wane as divorce is on the incline and this is reflected in characters like Jody's mom, who is way too comfortable being sultry with <laughs> Jody's boyfriend when she like she asks for a cigarette and she's like, "Oh, what are you guys doing?" Like, no, get out of here. <laughs> it's weird. It's, it's so weird. So weird. It's so weird. Um, the mom is a really strange character. Like, I could go on for days about her, but. So the kids are paying directly for what their parents are doing. And we have this, like, overlap of generations where in the town elders, sex was extremely taboo, but awful things were happening behind closed doors. And now, with the younger generation, they're reaping the consequences of those actions. But, like, on the other side of the coin, sex is talked about freely 
and everyone is on a mission to lose their V-card. <laughs> and they're so, like, open about it. Um, and it's a really fucked up idea <laughs> because, I don't know, I feel like the whole ideas surrounding virginity and sex and stuff at this time are so, like, beyond what is acceptable. But, um from a sociological perspective, like, this is what was happening, and it makes a lot of sense, especially for the time of the film's release. It's a very sex-positive film. Yes. Because the trope has been turned on its head. These kids mm-hmm. are at risk of dying if they don't have sex. Yes. So everyone, including their parents, is like, yeah, go ahead, bang, like, just do it. <laughs> You know, we're yeah. told we're told, right, if we're gonna quote mean girls, like if you have sex you'll get pregnant and die. You know, and just <laughs> please just don't do it, you know? Yes. Yes. Uh and this is sort of turned on its head, right? Where it's like mm-hmm. the opposite is kind of put into this film. It's like right. if you don't have sex, you'll die. So <laughs> it's interesting how once the narrative changes what parents think is acceptable for their children uh, when it comes to the possibility of losing them. Mm-hmm. What they're willing to let their, how they're willing to let their morals change. And it's yes. really kind of interesting. I don't know. It's mm-hmm. a real, it's actually genius. I don't know. I feel like this film, the concept is genius and it's, yes. it's amazing. And I think this is one of those films that is relevant even today, and this really should get rebooted, in, in all honesty. For sure. I agree. Um, and I that's interesting that you brought up Lolita, because this kind of goes back to what we were talking about earlier, when it was like, Jody is sexual, sexually charged and has tension with everybody, but is it really her, or is it everyone else? Because Lolita... Like, the, the story of Lolita, uh, the man, the character who tells the story, Humbert Humbert, is a child molester. Yes. And an unreliable narrator who basically justifies to the reader why he is sexually attracted to a child. Yep. Because she's just so sexy and he can't help himself. It's her fault that I'm attracted to her. Yeah. Right? So... It's like as the audience watching Cherry Falls, is this really how Jody is? Or is her sexual presence magnified by the people who want to fuck her? Wow. Good point. That is a really good point. Because even though we're seeing this kind of through Jody's eyes, she's really just kind of going through the motions. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Everyone else is is like kissing her, touching her. She's not really initiating anything until that moment that she tries to have sex with Kenny. Yeah. And then Kenny rejects her. And then everybody gets really uncomfortable because <laughs> you know it's not right. And then we all just want to throw up. Yep. <laughs> but I think there's also a common misconception. I'm so sorry. I'm just going to keep talking about ace stuff because this is all I know. No, um, don't be sorry. <laughs> but there's also a common misconception that aces are not sexually, quote unquote, attractive. Like Jessica Rabbit from Who Framed Roger Rabbit is very often coded as ace in the ace community and is used as like a fictional example of someone who is very, quote unquote, sexy looking. 
and sexually desired by others, but she herself just loves her bunny husband who makes her laugh. Mm-hmm. Just because somebody seems like a sexual person doesn't actually mean that they are, and maybe their sexual nature is projected onto them by others. Yes. Yep. But yeah, while I'm not trying to be defensive, I just have like a lot to say about asexuality, obviously. Uh, <laughs> I feel like I'm like that guy in Always Sunny in Philadelphia, the conspiracy <laughs> meme. I was like pointing at all the connections. Yes. Anyway, continue, Abby. I love what you're saying. Yes. I think what this film aims to do is highlight how differently sex and sexual acts and rape are talked about and acted on between the different generations like oh my god yes this film is so important because this is when we see the narrative begin to turn like the victim blaming starts being questioned along with what we consider rape and disclaimer here it has always been and always will be non-consexual sense or touching period and Mm -hmm. it can happen to anyone and it's not exclusive to women so uh, yes just wanted to highlight that um, yeah, I one part of the movie that I love is when her mom is trying to explain, like, she was weird and, like, whatever, and they had sex with her. And Jody's like, no, it was rape. Like, she yep. just flat out said, like, that's what it was. And that is so progressive. Yes, yes, way ahead of the times. I agree. Um, Now, I do agree with you, and I do see the possibility of Jody being an asexual character. And... These acts that she puts on, like we said, are just for show because she feels like an outsider or like it's not safe to be the one not having sex amongst her friends. Mm -hmm. And I think it holds a lot of different meanings, to be honest. And the reason why I say this is because when she's talking to Marliston about T.S. Eliot and he mentions her breakup, she's basically like, Holy shit, like, my life doesn't revolve around my fucking boyfriend. (laughs) Right. She's got other things on her mind, and she's different, which goes hand in hand with, like, that whole dumbass teacher's pet trope. Like, she could be sexy to him because she's not like other girls, and, like, she's got the body of a teenager, but she is so mature and it really is quite a conundrum like you're you don't really know what to think when you're watching these interactions because you're like she is so innocent and smart yet these people you're right like they are projecting so much onto her i think that it it, going with that what you just said the whole like i'm not like other girls like that in itself is super toxic yes the fact that she is very alternative compared to the other girls in the film is also interesting that she is not like other girls to the other men in the movie because she 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 really isn't (laughs) like she doesn't dress like they all dress kind of similar she's the one that's very alternative compared to them so that's an interesting um it's an interesting observation yes and listen i love your interpretation and if we're being realistic 
I am 100% positive that's not what they were going for in this film. Like, they did yeah. not write Jody as an asexual character on purpose. Nor did uh-huh. they write Sid, Lori, or even Danny this way intentionally. It's all coded. And mm-hmm. I mean, like, we're all different when it comes to sexuality. And sometimes you are a very sexual person, but you just don't want to have sex yet. And that is yes. completely valid. And that is very, very likely Jody's dilemma in real life. Mm-hmm. Um I just can't help but see the queer coding, especially as a queer ace person. And I'm just sort of like exploring that. So it's sort of like a the form of the Bader Meinhof phenomenon. Yeah. <laughs> Whereas like I just see it everywhere now. Um, <laughs> but it definitely like made me look at Final Girls and even Virginity differently. And listeners, listen, we want to hear your interpretations of this film and your interpretations of Jody. I know Alison Pierce, who we love, is doing something for like a UK like film festival talking about Jody and talking about Cherry Falls. Mm-hmm. Like it was like a Great Minds Think Alike thing where she was doing this also ne- this week. Nice. So um, I'll try to find that and link that in the show notes as well. But yeah, like I, I feel like it's good that people are talking about this film and talking about Jody. Because it is so, like, it's wild. It's so different than what we're used to in horror, which is kind of neat. Okay. Uh, I hate to go back to incest. Jesus, fuck. But um, (laughs) I need to mention uh, Alexandra West's great book, The 1990s Teen Horror Cycle. And West talks extensively about Cherry Falls and its place in the slasher genre. I have my book here. West says, um... Cherry Falls takes pains to show that the horror and monstrosity visited upon this town is the product of a secret the community upheld. When the town of Cherry Falls thought that they were protecting their best and brightest, they set in motion a series of events that would bring violence not necessarily upon themselves, but upon their children. Mr. Marlston's role in the film is thus doubly troubling to the town. Not only is he the byproduct of a horrific event, he is also a trusted person within the community. He is not an outsider everyone is suspicious of. He is a person they leave in charge of their children. Ralston's revenge in Cherry Falls comes from within the system. Though the film never explicitly states it, it is probable that Marlston was able to target certain students as virgins because of his proximity to them. He excuses the confidence of a teacher that students want to be liked by. And throughout the film, Jody finds ways to gain his affection relating to him that his lessons are making an impact on her. But this, of course, is not an innocent student-teacher relationship. Clover comments on the incest that makes this relationship different from the other from other such tropes. The patently erotic threat is easily seen as the materialized projection of the viewer's own incestuous fears and desires. It is disabling cathexis of one's parents and must be killed and re-killed in the service of sexual autonomy. When the final girl stands in the light of the day with the knife in her hand, she has delivered herself into the adult world. So the the film, the the phallic symbol is in Cherry Falls, um, and it sort of emphasizes this theory, uh, especially when Marlston tries to pierce Jody with it. So mm. there's a lot of incestuous stuff going on there. Yeah, great, wonderful trauma. <laughs> okay, so I want to mention a few quotes here uh, about how Mr. Marlston dresses up as his mother in this film which is also a very common and troubling horror movie trope. 
According to Kim Morrison, there's a few possible reasons why Mr. Merleston chooses to dress up as his mother to commit, to commit these crimes. First of all, as a high school teacher, he would be extremely recognizable in town, so he needed a costume that would make him look completely different, just in case victims ever got away, just like Jody did. Secondly, there's the obvious homage to Psycho from 1960, where Norman Bates frequently dressed up as his mother to try to work through the issues he had with her in life. Even though Mr. Marlston clearly doesn't have a good relationship with his mother, he still wants to get revenge on her behalf. By dressing up as her to commit these murders, it is as though they are working together to finally return to Cherry Falls and fight back. Finally, with the large silver streak in her long, lanky hair, Laura Lee has quite a distinctive look. By dressing up as his mother, Mr. Marlston wants to put the fear into Sheriff Markin at the others involved once and the others involved once they realize what the killer looks like he wants them jittery and on edge because then they are more likely to make mistakes and if they're focusing on Laura Lee they definitely won't respe- won't suspect Mr. Marlston unquote mm. so those are some reasons as to why uh this is happening um and according to Logan Ashley Kisner who is a trans gentleman and writer for his article, A Tom- a Timeline of Transgender Horror. He says, quote, Marlston, who was abused by his severely traumatized mother, commits his murders while dressed as her, wig, makeup, and all. Though this mostly comes across as an intentional detail in his long game for revenge, rather than as mental issues resulting in cross-dressing, unquote. We did talk a little bit about this issue in our silence of the lambs episode and we do reference a timeline of transgender horror in that Mm -hmm. um but i don't really feel like i can create my own opinion on this since i am not trans or even non-binary so if there are any trans or non-binary listeners out there who have seen this film uh i would really like to know your thoughts do you feel like this is extremely offensive and creates more fear of the quote-unquote other or do you think that it's maybe wasn't meant to be that way and is more so just something he uses as a disguise uh let us know i want to hear your thoughts me too Okay, so let's get into our final thought. The sins of our parents, feminism, and the patriarchy in Cherry Falls. So according to Georgina Howlett for their blog post, A Case Study into Horror, Structuralism, and Feminism in Horror Films, quote, Feminism is, in turn, uh, evident throughout the horror genre, Though, though the quality of women is few and far between. Cherry Falls is perhaps one of the most feministically driven I have seen, purely due to the fact that it does not victimize sexually free-thinking women. In fact, it encourages relationships to an extent as being something that is not to be condemned or pe- or have people ashamed of, unquote. You know, it makes me sad that this film isn't more popular for that reason. Mm. Watching these teenagers talking so candidly about sex and planning a literal sex party was like... <laughs> Are we in Europe right now? (laughs) Also, is this a commentary on why sex ed is so important in public schools? Like, for real? (laughs) Yes. You know, I really love the scene where all the girls are talking about the reality of having sex with men. And the one girl 
who is like condemned in the film at first for being like the quote unquote slut. They like kind of go to her and they're like, teach us, like teach us your ways, you know, because she knows (laughs) like everything. And um, she says something like, forget being pleasured by men. It's just not going to happen or something. (laughs) She talks talks about like how masturbation is like the way that you're the only way you're going to get pleasured or whatever. (laughs) And it's actually one of the best scenes, I think, in the film. Mm hmm. And, you know, according to Amy Roberts, Scream and Cherry Falls are alike in this manner, depicting two very different teenage girls determined to make their fathers proud while also maintaining agency over their lives, regardless of the possible fatal consequences of their decisions. In both films, sex is presented as being far less of a big deal to the main protagonist than people warn them about. And that's true in all respects except one, the sexual proclivities of their parents have a colossal impact on their lives. As Mr. Marlston Marlston tells Jody and her father while he has them tied up in his basement, it's a stinking world where rapists become the pillars of the community. As a result, he holds the entire town responsible for the lack of justice his mother received and punishes the next generation for the mistakes of their parents. In Scream, of course, Maureen Prescott is the one violently punished for what Billy Loomis considers to be her sexual misdeeds, having an affair with his father. But eventually, the killing spree continues against the children of Woodsboro, too. So the specific final goal? Sydney, Maureen's daughter, and Billy's girlfriend. In fact, poor Maureen is held as the prime motivation for just about every murder right across all three films of the original Scream trilogy. Her sexual tendencies and loose morals are held up as having directly and indirectly destroyed so many lives that not only did she deserve to be killed for it, but dozens of others apparently deserve to be slaughtered for it too. If only she would have just remained an innocent. What both Scream and Cherry Falls suggest is that these teenagers are products of that same stinking world in which double standards are seen, double standards see a woman like Maureen brutally punished for sleeping around while the men who slept with her, like Billy's dad, living to see another day without having to suffer similarly. It's a world where a rapist becomes successful enough to become a sheriff and his victim is made a social outcast for having spread false accusations that he raped her, unquote. It is also a really big deal to highlight the fact that these people are allowed to, like, continue living their lives, and they have that successful career, and they become teachers and police officers and people who work in human services with this humongous atrocity that they committed. And they're shaping the way that their communities function. And Mm. even when the truth is revealed and the evidence is stacked, they will still have people that come to their defense and say there was a good reason for it. Like, the ending of this film made me so mad. It's so good, but it is so infuriating. Yeah. Like, to me, it almost says that you can learn the truth, but you don't have to have boundaries. And the people that you love cannot be bad. And their stories, no matter how bad, will get swept under the rug as long as they do, like, one or two good deeds to make up for it. And it's like, you don't make up for something like that. You don't. No, that follows you forever. 
Yes. Yeah. According to Emma Fraser, the notion of a rapist escaping justice because of his background is one we see play out in the news far too frequently. This is not a problem left behind in the past. The final girl is not the only focus of Carol J. Clover's examination of gender and modern horror in her seminal text, Men, Women, and Chainsaws. One chapter examines the role of rape revenge stories, including I Spit on Your Grave and Ms. 45, which was actually recently referenced in the Halloween episode of Euphoria. Uh, Revisiting Cherry Falls now, it's easy to identify how the film is a convergence of final girl archetypes with rape-revenge horror. One aspect Clover discusses in her book is how law enforcement often fails the victim of sexual assault. In I Spit on Your Grave, Jennifer doesn't report her gang rape. Instead, she takes it upon herself to get justice. In Cherry Falls, Laura Lee tries to go through the legal system, but it fails her because of how the community views these young men. That said, the original victim isn't the one getting her revenge in the end. Those who, in in the end, those who committed the original crime on Laura Lee are still not brought to justice, as Jody and her mom lie about the motive. This sexual assault stays buried, as does the biological link between her father and the killer. The town continues to protect its own. The final shot is of the falls turning blood red. The town forever stained by its lies. It has kept, unquote. And I mean, yeah, it, it's actually kind of surprising that at the end of this film, the patriarchy wins, mm-hmm. which really sucks. But it's still such a great ending because of that, because it makes you really think <laughs> she yes. doesn't she doesn't expose her father. He is still like a good guy, quote unquote, in the community. I mean, I as shitty as it was. I really loved that ending and, like, that final shot because blood and, like, the color of red is so symbolic of a lot of different things. Like, life, death, birth, cycles, sacrifices, revenge. And to go along with that, cherries are sweet, but they're also deadly. Like, the pits contain cyanide. I mean, being the symbol of innocence at the center... They can kill you. No. But, yeah. But, I mean, you can't have more cherries without the deadly pit because it's literally the seed. And the cycle goes on and on. Like, a woman's womb is a dangerous place, right? Like, we see that in many, many horror movies. And life comes from it. But in this instance, that life, Mr. Marliston turned out to be a murderer yeah because she was sexually assaulted and the cycle of abuse was carried on through her bloodline which was ironically ended by the man who started it Mm. honestly what a mess (laughs) (laughs) you know what i what i love is that laura lee is uh still alive because we see her show up like the back of her head yeah when uh mark and sheriff Markin goes to the house she's there it's not yep. marlston it's her mm-hmm. and then at the end jody sees her across the street yes that i thought was great because so scary it was very scary and it was just like you know like jody a woman did not stand up for another woman she protected her 
rapist father. Yep. And that will haunt her, I think. And that's like that. what that final image suggests is that Laura Lee, the victim, really, of all, in all this. I mean, she's a terrible person. She abused her son. But she's sort of the catalyst for everything. Like, she's started this whole thing, really, well, with what happened to her, basically. Oh, and my so God. Here's Jody, who had a chance to kind of set her free, and she doesn't do it. You know what they say, Gracie? What do they say? Blood runs thicker than water. Yeah. <laughs> they do say that. You know, like the end. Um, yes. Water, blood. Yep. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. All right. Abby, I love you so much. Oh. <laughs> Hey, listen, thanks for listening to this really long episode of Abby and I talking about sex <laughs> and <laughs> violence. Uh, we know you love it. Uh, <laughs> if you haven't seen, if you haven't seen Cherry Falls, definitely check out the link in the show notes to buy on DVD from Shout Factory. It's very underrated still, surprisingly. Uh, it should, everyone should own it. Hopefully one day we'll get an uncut version with all the blood and gore. Until then, we just got to watch the made-for-TV version of it, which is still super uncomfortable. I did kind of feel like I was watching a Lifetime movie. Yeah, it was sort of edited <laughs> like it was supposed to be, like, for TV, for sure. Yes. It's still very weird, though. It's so weird. Someone I know that watched it said, I would have never greenlit this script, ever. <laughs> it's too much. <laughs> There is a lot to unpack, but it is so great. It is. It's good. It's essential. It's essential horror. Check it out. Uh, and that's it for this month's episode of Good Morning, Nancy. Thank you all for listening. Uh, if you love what we do, please consider becoming a patron. Abby and I work really hard on the show without any help from researchers or editors. So let us know how much you appreciate our work and head on over to patreon.com slash Nancy. And if Patreon isn't your deal, you can also show us your support by checking out our merch shop. We've got coffee mugs, sweatshirts, t-shirts, and more. A link to our merch shop and our Patreon is in the show notes of this episode. So check it out. Yeah, and we know times are tough right now. So a free way to help the show is by following us on social media. Facebook at Good Morning Nancy, Twitter at Good Morning Nan, and Instagram at Good Morning Nancy Podcast. Don't forget to also tell a friend and spread the word about our show. Don't forget black lives still matter and trans lives still matter check mm -hmm. out this episode's show notes and see how you can help out we love you all to death have a good morning bye <laughs>